We'll take your Bibles this morning, open if you would to Joshua 24, Joshua chapter 24. You may or may not realize this, but uh, we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about what songs we're going to sing on Sunday mornings. Ryan and I look at all of these songs and try to discern what are good songs, what are not good songs. You, you, you probably know this. There are some new songs that are great songs. There are some new songs that are really bad songs. There are some old songs that are great songs. There are some old songs that are really bad songs. We try to think about all of these songs and try to find songs that we believe will minister to our church and uh, that would minister to the needs of the church in the moment that the church is in. But no matter how much we plan and think and pray about this, which we do, it's always interesting to me which songs actually stick. Which songs resonate with the hearts of the people? There are some songs every once in a while that you just sense, man, the people love to sing this song. And what we've noticed is that the songs that really resonate and the songs that you want to sing over and over and the songs which you sing loudly are the songs that are not only true, but the songs that are true of us. That are not only declarations of truth, which obviously we need that, but songs in which declare the truth as we have experienced it. The songs that are like blessed assurance, which say this is my story and this is my song. I'm praising my Savior all the day long. Someone else's story became our story. And when we hear that story, that story resonates with us. We've been singing the song about the goodness of God all my life. You have been faithful in all my life. You have been so, so good. I've had about a dozen of you tell me you want me to sing that song. Well, not me. You want that song sung at your funeral. I'm pretty sure you don't want me to sing that song at your funeral. But you want it sung at your funeral. That song is resonating with our people. We've been singing this song that's called I Got Saved. It says, I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord. I'm restored and made right. He got a hold of my life. I got Jesus. How could I want more? Something about that resonates with us. This is why we love Amazing Grace. Because it says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And when we begin together together and not only declare the truth, but declare that which has been experienced by us, the truth as manifested in our lives, something comes alive. I think when we begin to understand Joshua 24, it begins to resonate with us. And the reason it resonates with us is because it's not only true, it's true of us. It's not only their story, it's our story. This is a bit of a solemn and a significant special moment. We talked about it last week in Joshua 23. It says that Joshua was old and advanced in age. And in chapter 23 and 24, he gathers the people together and he gives them his last words. Joshua, the greatest hero of the Old Testament. Joshua, the one who pictures for us Jesus more than anyone else ever does in the Old Testament, is giving to us his last words. And we get this sense as we open this that we want to listen, we want to read, we want to receive what it is that Joshua, after all of his years of experience, has to say to us. But Joshua 24 seems to be even a more special moment. The stage is set in verse 1. Look at what it says. If you're in Joshua 24, say amen. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And he summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel. 
and they presented themselves before God. Everyone is gathered together for this special moment. We know that it was a special moment because it says, and they presented themselves before God. That little phrase is used a few places in the Old Testament, and every time it's used, it refers to like a solemn assembly, a time in which the people were gathered specifically because God was about to say something. It was not a a normal moment. It was a holy moment. They knew that God was going to speak, and they came for that purpose. It was also at a special place. It's no coincidence that they had gathered together at Shechem. In the history of the people of Israel, this place has a significant part in their story. When Abraham was living in a pagan land, And God called him to leave where he was going and to begin walking, not knowing where he was going, where he ended up at his journey of faith is in Shechem. It was there in Genesis 12 in which the Lord says to Abraham, Abraham, you have trusted me and you have followed me and I've brought you to this land and I will give you this land. 400 years later, here are the people the descendants of Abraham, in the land that God had promised that he would give them 400 years later. It's the land where it all started. It's the land where in Deuteronomy chapter 31, as Moses was dying, God gathered together assembly of the people and anointed Joshua to take Moses' place. It was where Joshua had his moment in which he was set apart for the work of the Lord. It's the place in Joshua 8 after a great defeat of the people of God when they renewed their vows to the Lord and renewed their covenant. And it is here once again that they will renew their covenant in Joshua 24. It's a special place. It's a special moment. And because it says they have presented themselves before God, there is a special sense that God is about to speak and he's going to say something they need to hear. And what he does then in verses 2 all the way through 13 is that Joshua speaks on behalf of the Lord and he tells the people of God their story. Now the reason this is significant is because he doesn't tell their story from their perspective, he tells their story from his perspective. And when your story is told from God's perspective, it's different than when it's told from your perspective. You see, if I were to ask you to tell your story, you would tell it in all kinds of different ways and you would bring out all kinds of special things. But could it be that when God tells your story, he might not remember and say the things, not just remember, but bring back to your remembrance the things that you remember, but things that were more significant than you realized. That God is retelling their story and in every one of our stories, there's a lot of eyes. I did this, I did this, I did this. When God tells your story, there's a lot of eyes as well, but the eyes are always a reference to him. Our story is always his story when told by his perspective. And listen to how the Lord tells their story and the emphasis on what the Lord has done for them. In verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him out of all the land of Canaan and made his, offering, made his offspring many, and I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterwards I brought you out. Verse 6. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, 
and he made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand and took possession of their land. And I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now he tells them their story because he does think that it's important at this moment in their life, as they have entered into the promised land and are essentially experiencing what he says in verse 13, all of the benefits and the beauty of this land that he had promised them, he feels it's important for them to remember their story as it really happened. Not as they think it happened, but as it really happened. And as he tells their story, he reveals to them that their story is really a story of two things. It's a story of sovereign guidance and saving grace. That's their story. It's a story of sovereign guidance, God leading every step of the way, and saving grace. Now look at how he defines that for him. In the first few verses, he shows this is a story of sovereign guidance. In verse 2, he reminds them where they came from. Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, and the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Now, I don't think I have to describe this for too long, but you know, if you go back far enough, all of our family trees are humbling. Some of you may not have to go back far at all, but some of you, if you go far back enough, you're going to realize that somewhere in the past, you're humbled by your family tree. And no matter how much you might like to mask it, I promise you, we can all discover some stuff you may not want anyone to know. And so it is that the Lord goes back to Abraham's family tree, and they remember Abraham as he should be remembered, a righteous man full of faith that stepped out in obedience to God. And the reason they're here today is because Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness, and he went to the land that God was promising them. But the truth is, is that Abraham was a pagan man from a pagan land. History tells us that his father, Terah, was most likely not only an idol worshiper, but an idol maker. And they lived in the pagan land on the other side of the Euphrates. And those people worshiped the God of fire. And they worshiped the God of the moon. And they worshiped the God of the sun. And they worshiped the God of the stars. As a matter of fact, in all of that land, the primary God was the God Sin, S-I-N. It was the wife of the moon. Abraham grew up in a generation with a father and in a home where they worshipped the what not the moon, the wife of the moon is who they prayed to. The wife of the moon is who they asked for blessing. The wife of the moon is who they asked for for provision. Did you know that Abraham was an absolute pagan? 
I think we view Abraham like we do Noah in the sense of everyone was wicked, but Noah was righteous and God spared him because of his righteousness. Somehow Abraham was this righteous man of faith and God chose him because he was righteous. Let me be very clear from what Joshua 24 teaches us. Abraham was a pagan man living in a pagan city, raised by a pagan family, and no one in his family had any reason you would look at why God would come to him and call him out. No reason. The only reason that we know of that God came and called out Abraham is because for some reason God saw Abraham and decided in this pagan family, in this pagan city, to call him out and invite him to come and experience all of God's goodness as he walks in faith. There is no reason why it's Abraham. And when God tells the story, he wants to remind the people that just like everyone else, Abraham was a pagan that was saved by the sovereign grace of God and the sovereign guidance of God. God is behind all of this. God is the one writing the story. God is the one who called him and led him every step of the way. I mean, just just look at this in verse 3. He says, "Now, now I took your father Abraham from beyond the Jordan, and I led him through the land of Canaan. I gave him Isaac. Verse 4, I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. Verse 5, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards, I brought you out. Abraham, far from God in a pagan land, is now living in the land of promise and given the promise of God. Why? Because of the sovereign guidance of God. God led him every step of the way. He is there in that moment, and in turn, the people are there in that moment simply because God, by his gracious providence, led them to that place. He says to the people of God, be very clear, you're here because I brought you here. After all of your battles, After all of your victories, after all of your hard work, know that you're not here because of that. You're here because of the sovereign guidance of God. He says your story is not only one of sovereign guidance, it's one of saving grace. That's verses 5 and following. 400 years of history are recounted in these few verses. And God tells their story by highlighting their crisis moments. You know, I love this because... It reminds me that someday when we see our story from God's perspective, what we will realize is the greatest moments in our life that defined us more than any other moments, the moments in which God used us and led us more than any other moments seem to always be the crisis moments. When God tells their story, he emphasizes the crisis moments and none of us want them, none of us like them, we all wish they didn't happen. But God is the one who leads us through these crisis moments. And when our story is told, you will find that it was those moments that defined you. It was those moments that made you. Do any of you understand this? It's true. He highlights the crisis moments. And what he says is your life has been filled with this crisis after this. You look all the way back 400 years, crisis after crisis. But in every single one of them, it's a story of my saving grace. He says in verse 5, he says, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I, I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterwards I brought you out. Verse 6, I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. Verse 7, and when they cried to the Lord, the Lord says, I put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and you saw what I did in Egypt. Verse 8, I brought you to the land of the Amorites. They fought with you, but I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them before you. 
Balaam came and wanted to curse you, but I didn't listen to Balaam. I blessed you and delivered you out of his hand. And from all of these other nations, I gave them into your hand. Verse 12, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. So they they go into these nations and they have these massive victories. What they don't understand is that God went before them and God went beside them and God went behind them. And the reason they won is because God was saving them. Lest they become arrogant and think that they are here because of something they have done, the Lord reminds them, your entire life is a testimony of saving grace. All summarized in verse 13. He says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them and you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. I love that because here's the people of Israel eating the fruit of these vineyards and all these things from the olive orchards and they did not plant any of it. They are eating the produce that someone else planted. They're living in cities that someone else built. They're enjoying the spoils of war. And the way sanctification works, the way our life with Christ works, is that God calls us, and he initiates that work, and he continues that work, but he calls us as believers to work as well. And we work hard, and we pursue Jesus, and we wake up early, and we spend time with God, and we serve in the church. But at the end of it all, when the story is told, all of our victories are not because of what we've done. They're all because of what the Lord has done. And at the end of our life, we say what we said at the beginning of the service this morning from Psalm 115, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. There's no real explanation for it except this, the sovereign guidance and saving grace of God. But he does not simply tell them their story because it's story time. He tells them their story because it's decision time. You see, after he tells their story in verse 2 all the way through verse 13, 13, look at how he begins verse 14. Now, therefore. Now, therefore, as a result of all of this story about how I guided you and I saved you and I displayed my grace to you, now, therefore, in light of what I have done for you, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Because of what I have done for you, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And here it is. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, I have retold your story so you know that I am at the center of your story, and everything that has happened to you is a sign of my guidance, my providence, my sovereignty, my salvation, my grace. I have been working in your life for 400 years, and now because of that, you must make a choice. You can choose to go serve the foreign gods that your ancestors served, the God of the sun and the moon and the stars and the wife of the moon, or you can serve the Lord. Either way, you must choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua makes his declaration. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua has said, I have served the Lord in the past. I have found him faithful. My family is saying that we will serve the Lord. But you, you must choose to serve the Lord. 
I find it interesting that we always find verse 15 at the very end there. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what's always put on a piece of reclaimed wood and sold at Lifeway. But the real verse that should be put on a piece of wood and served at Lifeway is choose this day whom you will serve. Praise God for Joshua's choice, but Joshua's choice is not your choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. And so he's presenting it, saying, listen, I, I've chosen after all of my years and seen the Lord, I've chosen to follow the Lord, but you must choose yourself. Now here's what's great. He tells them they have to choose. He tells them of his choice. It's obvious what choice he wants them to make. And so then they respond in verse 16 and 18. The people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Why? Because of their story. For it's the Lord our God who brought us out and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight, who preserved us all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people of the Amorites who lived in the land. And the verse 18 is similar to the end of verse 15, in which the people now make their direct uh, declaration. Therefore, we also, Joshua, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. In which Joshua says, praise God for your decision. I'm so thankful. Let's close in prayer and be gone. That's what you would think he would say. But all of a sudden, the most surprising things happens when he tells them why they should choose and what they should choose and asks them to choose, and then they make a choice. To which Joshua responds, nope, you're not able to serve the Lord. <laughs> Look at verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, no, you're not able to serve the Lord. No, he's holy, and he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He's not going to forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve these foreign gods. He's going to turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. What a strange moment. It's like at the end of the sermon, we have a time of invitation, and I beg you to choose the Lord, and you come up and say, Pastor, I'm ready to choose Jesus, and I look at you and say, I don't think you are. No, no, why don't you come back next time? This is what Joshua does. Choose who you will serve. We will serve the Lord. No, I don't think so. Now, there's two reasons Joshua does this. First of all, he knows them. I think Joshua senses that they're getting caught up in the moment. This is like it, it's summer camp when you throw your sins in the cross, in the fire, or nail them to the cross. You know, just one of those moments. They're getting all excited and about to make some decision. And, and Joshua says, listen, I know you, and I know how you do. But I want you to pause here for a moment to recognize this is a serious decision. He stops. He says, wait a minute, hold on. This, this is a, a very serious decision. And we know that from the key word in verses 14 all the way to the end, and that is the word serve. If you mark in your Bibles, you want to highlight all of the eyes in the first 13 verses, and then in verses 14 all the way through 28, you want to circle all the times serve is mentioned. Because it's I did this, I did this, I did this, now serve, 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 serve. But the reason that he pauses and makes them think is because of what the word serve means. The word serve means a wholehearted worship and obedience and devotion to the Lord. The word serve means to labor for another person, to become a slave of another. It's the word that Paul uses often when he refers to himself as a slave 
of Jesus Christ. He's not saying, I want you to pray this prayer. He's not saying, I want you to walk an aisle. He's not saying, I want you just to give mental assent to what the Lord has done in the past. He's saying, now that you know what the Lord has done in the past, if you really believe it, demonstrate that belief, not by praying a prayer and walking an aisle, but demonstrate that belief by choosing to serve the Lord. Choosing to make him the Lord of your life. Choosing to submit to his authority over your life. Choosing to make him the boss. It is a call to surrender your life to Christ. To be in a permanent relationship of servitude. To take your will and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. I'm giving my life completely over to you. I'm trusting you with it. And the tense of the word here reveals to us that it's a a call to continuous action. Maybe the biggest misunderstanding we've had in salvation is that salvation is just a one-time decision with no continuous action. Let me tell you what, salvation begins by calling upon the name of the Lord. You have to come to a day, choose this day whom you will serve. You have to decide. And I believe that when you decide, if you are authentic in your relationship with Christ, you are brought into the family of God, you are safe and secure, but that doesn't mean that now you rest in that without continuing to follow him. That means you continue to wake up the next day and choose again to follow the Lord. And the next day and the next day and the next day. You keep choosing to follow the Lord. And he warns them because he says, listen, someday, I know what you're saying now, but someday if you choose not to follow the Lord, There will be consequences to that. So think about what this means. You are giving your life over to Jesus Christ. He wants them to make the decision. He wants them to make sure they understand the decision. That's why in verse 23, after they say again, no, 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 we we will serve the Lord. He says, well, if so, then put away your foreign gods. Then stop serving something else. If you're gonna serve the Lord, serve the Lord. And incline your heart to the Lord. Turn towards the Lord. So so turn your back on these things and and turn your heart towards the Lord. And as they declare that they're going to do that, they make a covenant together. Joshua writes it down. They make a monument so that they might remember there was a day in which they chose to serve the Lord. I think the reason this passage is so significant for us is because in reality, this isn't just their story. This is ours. You can tell our story in a thousand different ways. And if we were to go around and tell our stories, one thing that I always find true as a church, we'd be amazed at everybody's story. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of disappointment in every person's story. And there might be a ton of different stories, but let me tell you something, not to make light of your story or my story, but at the end, our stories are incredibly similar in that they're all stories of God's sovereign guidance and God's saving grace. At the end of it all, when God tells our story, there's so many similarities that when we tell our story, we are the I, but when God tells the story, he is the I because he's writing it He's giving his guidance over it. He's saving us and showing his grace. And he is always the one that is the hero of our story. It's his protection and his leadership and his guidance and his calling and his stirring and his moving. Even when you think you've done something on your own initiative that was good and right, the only reason you did it is because God put it in your heart. He's always moving before. He's always a step ahead. He's always stirring. And here are the people of God going, that's right, we conquered all these enemies. And the Lord is saying, you're right. By my grace and through my power, 
And because I was fighting with you, you have done these things, but I am the hero of the story. The truth is all of our story can be summarized in Ephesians chapter 2 when it says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were by very nature a child of wrath, but God in his great love and by his grace has saved us, not according to any works that we have done in the flesh, but simply because of his grace. And someday we will look back at our story in whatever understanding we have in eternity, and we will see that our story, too, is a story of sovereign guidance and saving grace. Listen. In the same way that their story of sovereign guidance and saving grace demanded a decision, so it is that our story demands a decision as well. Our story demands a serious decision. That we must decide who we will serve. It's a choice that we must willingly make. Choose this day. It is a choice you make. You make a choice every day who you're going to serve. You make a choice every day who's going to call the shots. You make a choice every day of who's going to be the boss and who's going to be Lord. When you wake up in the morning, you're making a choice of whether you're going to spend some time with the Lord and let him to begin to direct the day or you're going to direct your own day. Every day you're making a choice of whom you're going to serve. It begins with an initial choice. It goes throughout our lives, and it might be good for the church to take a little play out of Joshua's playbook, and before people make a choice, to stop them and say, great, praise God he's stirring in your heart, and I'm so thankful you're ready to follow Jesus. But just know this. You're not adding Jesus to your pre-existing life. You're making Jesus your life. Let's just know this. And I'm not saying this because of Prince Avenue. I'm saying this because we live in Bogart, Georgia, in the deep, deep south. And not everybody who prays a prayer and asks Jesus into their heart has chosen to serve the Lord. We live in a culture of people who say, well, I made a decision back then. And I I asked Jesus. I I walked an aisle. I will never forget when I did a funeral for someone who who I had known because they were in our community. They had no relationship with Jesus. There was nothing in their life whatsoever that manifested the life of Jesus. They had never been involved with the church. And at their funeral, their family comes to me and says, Pastor, praise God for this. I said, what? They said, well, we just opened Granddad's Bible and found his baptism certificate. Now we know he's in heaven with Jesus. God, help us. I can sign as many certificates as you want me to sign. But if you don't choose to serve the Lord, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Because you're making a choice that you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you believe that he's the way and the truth and the life, you're going to follow him completely. And we live in a generation, a time, and a culture that is playing church. We're saying, keep your life, just put a little Jesus in it. So worship all the other stuff. Make sure all this other stuff is the center of your life. Just, just give Jesus a couple of hours on Sunday. Jesus does not need to be added to your life. Jesus wants to take over your life. He stops him and he says, choose this day whom you will serve. Let me ask you this. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? And he wants them to think about this. Why would you choose to make Jesus the center of your life? It says to us in verse 14, now therefore, now therefore, based upon all this, So what I want to ask is, what's the meaning of that therefore? Why? Why should they do this? Now listen, I just need need about seven more minutes with you. You've got to listen to this. This is so important. Listen to this. 
I don't believe the motive for following Jesus is because you think you owe Jesus something. This is not, look at all I've done for you. Now this is what you should do for me. Look at, look at this. From the very beginning, I've been saving you and I've been guiding and I've been providing. Now, now it's time for you to do something for me as if we can pay Jesus back. That's what is often referred to as the debtor's ethic, which goes something like this. Jesus died for you. The least you can do is live for him. If I ever say that, be done with me. Because that leads to a joyless and guilt-ridden Christianity in which you wake up every morning thinking, well, I better serve Jesus because all he did for me and he did this and he did this, so I better do this. And your motive for following Jesus is always guilt. Well, if he did all that for me, I better do something for him. Listen, the Lord wants to deliver you from that this morning because that is not the motive for following Jesus. It's not saying, I've done all of this, now you owe me something. So so if that's not what it is, what is the therefore in verse 14? The therefore in Joshua 24, 13 is based upon Joshua's testimony in Joshua 23. You can't make the choice of Joshua 24 without understanding the truth of Joshua 23. Now, if you weren't here last week, Let me remind you of the truth of Joshua 23. Joshua comes to the end of his life and he's got one word to say to the people. Here it is. God is good and you can trust him. That's his life story right there. Joshua's saying, listen, I'm over 100 years old. God is good and you can trust him. That is his testimony after all of his life of experience of walking with God. And then after he gets them to understand that, he then goes and says to them, God has not only told you he's good and you can trust him, he's proven it every step of the way. Every step for 400 years, he's continued to prove to you that he's good. He's continued to prove to you that he's better. He's continued to prove to you that he's enough. 400 years of proving that he is good and he is faithful. Now, because you believe and have seen his goodness and believe and have seen his faithfulness now because he has proven himself to you, because he has shown you that no one loves you like he does and no one cares for you like he does and no one saves like he does. Now, choose Jesus. Why? Not because you owe him. You can't ever pay him back. Because he's good. Because you can trust him. Because he knows how to run your life better than you do. And I promise you, you will make a mess of your life the longer you hold on to it. Jesus wants to take your broken life and make it whole again. You trust him. You give him everything because perfect love casts out fear and you should be afraid not of giving Jesus your life. You should be afraid of holding on to your life because Jesus will make it whole and you will lead yourself into greater and greater brokenness. But you have to choose. To not choose is to choose. Because if you're not consciously, daily choosing Jesus, then you're choosing something else. You're all serving something. Whether your work or your hobbies or your children, you're serving something. We're all serving, there's all something that's the center of our lives. And everything revolves around that. And our heart, our affection, our mind, our attention, our money. The reason giving is so important is because it is a reflection of what you're serving. I beg you to give faithfully to the church, not because God needs your money. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. 
And if you want to know what you're serving and what matters the most, well, then look at areas like that. But you've got to make a decision. You've got to choose. And it does start with a moment. Listen, it starts with something like today. You say, Pastor Josh, why do you give an invitation at the end of the sermon? Because the Lord says, choose this day whom you're going to serve. And why do you ask people to respond right now? Because it says, choose this day. Because I believe that right now in this place, God is stirring in some of your hearts. And some of you have been running from God. And some of you have not been choosing the Lord. And you need to choose this day. This is the day. And it starts here. But just know that that decision that starts today also must go to tomorrow. And every time you face temptation or sin, you know what you're doing? You're choosing what you believe is better. That Jesus is always better. And I promise you, based upon my testimony and the testimony of thousands of years of history of people walking with the Lord, if you choose to trust the Lord, you will look back someday on your story and you will be able to say there was never a time when the Lord disappointed. He always came through. He was always good. He was always better. It was always worth it. But you have to have enough faith to believe that. I beg you, choose. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.